All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Sunday, December the 17th, halfway through December, Christmas fast approaching, new year upon us, um, but it's 50 degrees here in Boston, and I gotta tell you, I am, I think, like, my entire body clock is messed up, and I'm woefully behind on, on any gift shopping. How are, how are you doing in that, in that department? I'm doing okay in that department. I feel good. If if Christmas was tomorrow, I could go and I would be fine. There are a couple of things that like I would still I would still like to get, but I, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. So I'm pleased with that. So certainly uh, happy Hanukkah to everyone that celebrated over the past couple of weeks. I know people are very excited with Christmas approaching, even if the weather up here at least is not matching what it traditionally is which is something I don't like, Ricky. I love living up here because of the seasons. And so I think that winter should feel like winter. And it's frustrating when it doesn't. With that said, you and I got a very rare and unprecedented, I think, for both of us, golf outing in last Saturday, which was lovely. And so as much as I might like theoretically complain that like, ah, there's, it's, it's too warm out, I do enjoy the activities I get to do outside when it, when it stays warm through December. Yeah, that I mean, have to take advantage of it for sure. But it is, um, it's discon disconcerting a little bit. Right, you're right. You don't want to think about it too much because I'm just like, oh, let me just enjoy my golf without worrying why it's like 55 degrees on December 10th. <laughs> but you're you're back from another trip. This is, I think, I feel like that's been one of the themes. If we look back on our, our recording episodes of 2023, friends have told us this before when they listen. They're like, every time you guys open, it's Ricky. You're back from another trip, and like that's how it's felt to me too. So how was you were down in South Carolina the, this past week? How was that? I was down in South Carolina visiting my aunt and uncle down there got to see my cousin who is somehow 23 years old and um i mean obviously seen him over the years but it's in my head he is you know the the 12 13 year old cousin that i that i that i picture him as and all of a sudden he's 23 got his own apartment got a girlfriend got his own job um so it's it it's cool to see but also disconcerting in a in a different way <laughs> but yeah, yeah they just they grow up so fast right <laughs> they really do they really do speaking of growing up so fast a quick shout out to our great friend and friend of the pod daniel gonzalez who had a beautiful baby girl um just a few days ago sunny bruin gonzalez came into the world i think december 12th oh boy i might I might screw that up december 12th or 11th but anyways Congratulations to Dan and Paige for that. I'm going to take the 10th on that date there, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We can fact check ourselves after this. But uh, if people don't know, Dan is someone that's joined us for our annual like President's Day draft. So some of the our most fun and our most favorite episodes that we've ever done. And so we're hopeful after that she has come early enough that he'll be able to join us again in mid-February for an, another draft uh, this coming year. That's right. The little ones can can throw those plans uh, 
out of out of whack. But enough about the uh, the personal anecdotes, Brennan. What are we talking about this week? We're going to talk about two seminal figures in 20th century American life. We're going to talk about the recent passings of Dr. Henry Kissinger, uh, Secretary of State under multiple administrations, and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court. They both died about a week ago. We've done one episode like this before. We did one last September, I believe, when Queen Elizabeth II and Mikhail Gorbachev passed away uh, in, in um, close proximity to each other. And we felt that those were two people that had had such an impact on world history in the 20th century that we felt it was right to spend a whole episode discussing their their impacts and their legacies. And similarly, when Dr. Kissinger passed and then Justice O'Connor passed, you and I were texting about obviously we're going to talk about it. And then we ultimately decided, now let's, I think these two deserve a, a full episode digging into their contributions to American life and politics and society and, and world affairs too. And so I'm, I'm excited because there are two people who obviously I knew about generally and to, to varying degrees, but their deaths forced me to go and, and read a whole lot more about their their histories and uh, their like their backgrounds and their their actions and I think I learned a lot about each of these figures and I'm so excited to discuss with you and I hope that our listeners even if you are familiar generally with who these people are um, will find this uh, interesting uh, as well yeah can't wait to get into it all right. Uh, before we do get into it, a reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, I'm going to give you one more Christmas tree Christmas tree pun uh, now that we are right in the middle of the season. Why do Christmas trees have trouble sewing? They always lose their needles. Look at that. Look at that. See, I, I knew you would get it there. That we love we love we love when Ricky gets it because then he feels better about the pun. He's like, oh, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I am very vain in that way. All right. Well, check out those guys at Cannon Hill if if you're looking for uh, some quality furniture. And uh, let's take a short break and then come back and talk about Dr. Kissinger. Let's do it. All right, so I'm going to try and give a brief, a very brief bio of uh, of Henry Kissinger as in a la style of uh, in the style of Brendan Kelly. Um, not not something that I I think I can do very well because his his biography is uh, expansive. So just the the general stuff. He was born in May of 1923 in Germany. Um, and died here in the U.S. in 2023. So at the ripe old age of 100, 100 and a half uh, years old, um, he fled Germany with his family um, during the, just prior to World War II. Um, in 1938, arrived in the United States. He actually ended up going back to Germany um, to fight with the U.S. Army um, and had in a lot of 
I think experiences that he had there. I don't, I, I, I think it's sort of debatable in terms of exactly how it influenced him, but I think it is obviously a, a seminal part of his life. He then came back to the U S went to Harvard um, and sort of engaged in a lot of that kind of policy research and sort of became a preeminent thinker on international relations and particularly like nuclear politics. Um, from there, he became the secretary of state. I mean, I'm skipping over a lot of things in the early 1970s, secretary of state under Richard Nixon, and then following that under Gerald Ford. Um, he held both that position as well as a position as a natural national security advisor, um, which is a, <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty impressive sort of resume uh, to hold and even more impressive to think about in succession. Um, what he did in those roles, I think people will debate about how impressive um, his sort of the, <laughs> the fallout uh, of his actions were, but I think it, what is not debatable is that he had a, an outsized influence on um, American politics, particularly international relations and sort of how the America has sort of conducted itself abroad um, over the last 75 years. So I'll stop there. Take it where you will, Brendan. I think that was pretty well done because the words that people choose to describe him, I think are, are, are it's important to choose your words carefully here. I, I, I think what the word that comes to mind for me, for him, is that he was a significant man. Like he, he, he accomplished a lot. What you think about those accomplishments, I think varies quite widely. And I'm, I'm excited to get into that discussion with you. Part of the bio that this caught my eye in one of the, one of his obituaries. So I'm quoting, I think it's from the Washington Post. Quote, in less than four years during the early 1970s, Mr. Kissinger brokered the opening of relations between the United States and China, the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam, major arms control agreements with the Soviet Union, the Israeli-Arab Accords. And, like these were all he did all of these things. He was like the architect of all of these things within a, a very brief period before ascending to the position of the secretary of state under those uh, the Nixon and Ford administrations. So incredibly impactful. Kissinger has been widely described and describes himself as a practicer of, of real politic. And what that means is that he sees things as much as possible through the lens of being pragmatic and practical and not confusing emotion or infusing emotion or values or morality in foreign policy. Again, I think that's where his legacy is incredibly complicated. But he he just kind of there, there were a couple of quotes that I, I thought were really interesting where he said at one point like covert action should not be confused with missionary work um, and it's impossible to invoke the imperfection as an excuse to record before responsibilities so it, it, he was kind of he saw the world this is kind of a very European 20th century like fatalist that this is a tragic world and the, the world is is filled with bad possibilities the evil possibilities and your job is just to choose the least evil as much as you can and to advance your own interests and he practiced that all over the world i'm sure we'll talk about his his work in south america and in africa and in the middle east and in asia and with the the soviet union all over the world 
he was advancing U.S. interests apart from morality, value, democratic values. And he reminded me, Ricky, of, of like, in reading all of these things and trying to, tr myself trying to grasp like the complexity of him as a person, as a statesman, as a, as a worldwide figure. Uh, for Game of Thrones fans out there, he reminded me very much of the character of Littlefinger, who was most famous for his, his speech, Chaos is a Ladder. And probably secondly, his second most famous line is that you should fight all battles everywhere all at once. And when I was like reading all of these descriptions of Kissinger, I very much thought like this is Littlefinger personified. Yeah, it, it's very much. And and I think I sort of appreciate what you said as we started. Just this opportunity to reflect on these people's lives gives you a second lens because whenever I hear the name Kissinger, I personally have like a reflexively negative connotation. I think, as you sort of mentioned, people either venerate his effectiveness as a secretary of state in sort of quote unquote advancing American interests. I will debate that, but the, and then the other side of the camp is that he's a war criminal through and through. And I think what we've always tried to do is actually interpret the individual across all of their actions and intentions and not um, to try and reduce them to uh, sort of one word anecdotes. And I think Kissinger is, is you know, more or less false um, or is is sort of a great example of this kind of complicated person who um, I think the more powerful they became, the un unfortunately, the, like the less grasp of humanity they may have had, but that doesn't necessarily um I don't yeah I don't know I I think I think it's very easy to to look at certain things that he did that resulted in that I think like you know be, if if it were not for a B would not have happened kind of resu resulting in the deaths of many many people um to reduce his entire uh tenure as secretary of state. And then even afterwards as kind of this long serving advisor to us presidents, um, in, a, in a certain light, I, th I think there's, I think there's more to it than that. That being said, I, I'm not entirely sure he was, or I am, I am certain he was not ent entirely held accountable for a lot of the things that he created. I like that <clears throat> comparison, a little finger, although I'm not a huge game of Thrones guy, as I understand Kissinger is that he operated just, I mean, despite being having the sort of very prominent title of secretary of state, his modus operandi was very much a backroom, make deals, make relationships um, and do things outside of the purview of sort of the broader public that rather than be the person who's grandstanding on certain um, and, and trying to whip up, public support in many ways he was like almost trying to do the opposite and trying to push things in 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 the directions that he felt were either necessary or in the interest of the parties that he was serving without drawing attention to it um and i think a lot of the way that people view american history from 1950 to maybe let's say pre 911 um, 
is due to the fact that Kissinger was doing a lot of or was either doing or sort of advocating for a lot of the policies that people are just today starting to unravel. Um, All right. Well, I got a question for you. So you said reflexively you hear the name or have heard the name Kissinger and you kind of recoil and you have these negative connotations about him. So let's talk specifically. What are some of the specific things that he was responsible for that had had given you that reflexive like this is not a good person? Yeah, I mean, this is like one of those like, where do where do you want to start? We can talk about indiscriminate bombing campaigns that Cambodia. um, Okay, let's talk. Let's let's start in Asian Vietnam. Yeah. So I'm and and so right, Vietnam War, he's largely credited with the the Paris agreements that kind of wind down the Vietnam War. I think a lot of historians Win, wins a Nobel Peace Prize for those. <laughs> yeah. Well, that the Nobel Peace Prize is like it's that's quite an organization. Uh the, you don't actually have to to create peace anywhere to to get that prize <laughs> obama you know uh, <laughs> notwithstanding so um or a prime example rather exactly. there you go <laughs> but um so right he's uh, under under nixon is largely credited with with this wind down now for those who are who've kind of studied a little bit about this and i'm i'm like the the farthest from that my understanding is that basically we had a a a possible future president in nixon undermining um what the current administration under johnson or what the sort of his predecessor administration under johnson was trying to do um by by basically telling the south south vietnamese who are our allies in in the vietnam war that if they kept fighting for a little longer that under Republicans, they would get a better deal than they were going to get under the Democrats who were initially trying to negotiate that withdrawal. Um, And to what degree Kissinger sort of promoted that, uh, (laughs) promoted that mindset, I think is, is up for debate. Ultimately Nixon's the one who was doing that sort of thing, but yes. Yeah. I mean, go for it. So just just to build off where where you're going with this, so that's all kind of pre-Nixon administration. Once he gets into the Nixon administration, he realizes very quickly, if he hadn't already realized it, that the United States cannot win this war. So he he knows that we can't win this war. But we're obviously locked, we're in the midst of maybe the height of, in some ways, the, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And Kissinger recognizes probably correctly that to just kind of concede and withdraw from Vietnam we, we lose some standing, we lose face in, with the Soviet Union. They might think that they're weak. They might want to press us in other places. And so what he does is he essentially keeps United States troops there and, and continues the war for, for three to four years, knowing that we have no chance of winning. And so that's been a big complaint of like, he cost tens of thousands of American lives and really hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese lives, continuing to fight a war that we knew we weren't going to win. Then he gets us out through the Paris Accords, and he knows that North Vietnam is going to roll through our allies, South Vietnam, in short order. But all he needs, he promises South Vietnam, like, you're going to be okay, we'll continue to support you. He so he shows that support by indiscriminate bombing of the North Vietnamese for days over Christmas, actually. So, uh, what is it, 50 years ago? Uh, and in a, as like a show of support for the South Vietnamese. And all he says to Nixon is they just got to last a year. And we can say that, hey, we gave them all the shot that we can. But like he knew and 
he knew quite well strategically that they had no chance. So I, I think a lot of the criticism of his handling of that was that he correctly assessed the situation and chose to put United States prestige in some ways over really hundreds of thousands of people's lives. If you want to now talk about the bombing of Cambodia uh, and, and Laos, that this would be a good time, I think. Well, I, I mean, I mean, we can. I think I, I, I would probably say, you know, in a, or probably to round out the discussion of Vietnam, and even if I'm, if I'm looking for a through line in terms of how he sort of orchestrates different types of. U.S. missions in in places where we're either actively at war or not at war, but kind of doing either clandestine things or overt uh, things such as bombing campaigns in, in Cambodia and Laos, is that, right, the backdrop of it is our contention or contentious relationship with the Soviet Union. And I think that the biggest problem with challenging his record or the problem that people have or maybe I'll take it from a different tack. For those people who defend Kissinger's record, what they would point to is that, well, we never went to war with the Soviet Union and, you know, we didn't have this kind of nuclear war to end all wars. And that was primarily because they respected us and they respected us because we showed them we would go anywhere and bomb whoever and upend whatever and make them know that we were, you know, we were not to be messed with. And I think that like, I, th I think it's just a tough argument to counter because it just requires such a big like counterfactual in that we you would have to assume that if we didn't do what we did in North Vietnam or in Laos or in Cambodia or, you know, to Allende in, in, uh, in Chile, right, that that would have signaled to the to the Soviet Union that we were weak and that wouldn't be a good time to either strike or escalate things and ipso facto, we would have ended up with a nuclear holocaust. That is very hard to disprove because it didn't happen. And yet it is also very hard to say that, you know, X, Y, Z, all were it not for these types of things, the end result would have been this catastrophe that would have kind of like ended the world as we know it. I think that's, I think what we know is what happened in North Vietnam. What we know is what happened in Laos and Cambodia. And that I think for a lot of people who are on the Kissinger was a war criminal, that like that is the bit that is going to be difficult for his legacy to undo. Because what he's saying is like, you know, the crown jewel of my legacy is that what didn't happen versus here's what I did to, in my mind, prevent that other thing, much worse thing from happening. So yeah, I, I don't I don't know if you want to get into the specifics of each one of these places because I think though different tactics at different times, to me the like the undergirding was this idea that you 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 had to prevent this right like what happened in Vietnam from happening you know from communists from taking over Vietnam because if it's Vietnam one day then it's China the next day Japan the next day and then all of a sudden now we're going to fight the world war three that nobody wants. And so instead of that, we will like figure out strategic ways to maintain this sort of balance of power um, that really sort of discounted the value of the human lives that were impacted in all of these places in, 
service of this broader inevitability that I think that he really believed was true. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And so his, but let's talk about the kind of looming over all of these conflicts is like we said, the cold war and the relationship with the Soviet union at this time. And Kissinger uh, pursued this policy of detente, I believe is how you say that word, um, which was, which kind of like, one piece through strength, which Reagan popularized later. So it's, it's a little bit of that kind of what you're saying of we'll be willing to go anywhere and fight anyone. Kennedy did the same thing, really. Uh, and but also like, hey, we're we don't want to antagonize the Soviet Union, right? If we can kind of like if 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 we don't push them directly too hard, we can maybe lower temperatures and prevent some miscalculation, strategic miscalculation. And we see that a couple of times. Uh, and again, like ultimately, his supporters would argue that it was a success, right? Like we not only did we not get into this World War III, the first nuclear conflict ever, which is obviously a massive, massive, great thing in, in the world, but also the Soviet Union does collapse 20 years later, uh, partly through the policies that Kissinger you know, was a proponent of. I think there are a couple incidents which... You know, critics would point to there was a time when Congress was trying to get like Soviet Jews. Kissinger was Jewish. I forget if you mentioned that at the beginning um, and trying to allow like Soviet Jews to come over here, like try to pass a resolution that like, hey, refugees that are fleeing Soviet policies, Jews in particular, we want to welcome the United States. And Kissinger, again, a Jew himself, was pretty much like, I think that's going to make the Soviets mad. So we're not going to we don't actually want to sign that and kind of good luck to those to the soviet jews over there and so again like he's kind of pursuing this no no emotion no personal sentiment like this is just what's good for kind of the united states also obviously in the middle east kind of crazy 50 years later that you know it's so many of these places where it feels like 50 years later as much as things have changed things have stayed the same 1973 there was the arab israeli war and Kissinger didn't want, thought the Arabs were going to get routed, didn't want the, the Soviets to kind of come to their allies' defenses there. And so he, he kind of let, lets, lets the war essentially happen uh, and and let, lets it play out again at the cost of thousands, tens of thousands of lives from uh, you know, Israel and Egypt. Uh, but it uh, does lead eventually to the historic 1979 like Arab-Israeli Accords, and it establishes the United States as the main power broker in the Middle East for the next 50 years. It completely he completely cuts out the Soviet Union again very effectively. If you're kind of viewing the the world as like this global chessboard where we're, we're constantly trying to like take advantage of places and push the Soviet Union out, he does that effectively. And again, the 79 Accords are historic in terms of creating relations between Israel and, and some of the Arab countries around it. But uh, what what ultimately it costs thousands of lives to enable this to happen. Uh, and so, again, like you can see, hopefully through some of these examples, why he's such a complicated figure and why people can view his legacy in such disparate ways. Yeah, I, I think... I think if you are able to convince yourself that were it not for that, like, right. I, I think that I'm maybe, maybe there are sort of two schools of thought on the collapse of the Soviet union. Right. One is that yes, American diplomats were able to sort of strategically kind of cut them off in ways, you know, 
for instance, a lot of what Kissinger is given credit for is the, th oh, I mean, the, the thawing of relations with China and really opening up uh, U.S.-Chinese business relations, um, which obviously China under Mao Zedong, you, like you would think are, is, a, is going to be a much more, uh, or it's, it would be more likely for that relationship to, to develop with the Soviet Union than it would with the United States. Right. And so so something like that, where China becomes largely an economic engine for the United States in the 80s and 90s doesn't happen without someone like Kiss, Kissinger figuring out how we can make this work. Um, now, of course, we're in a different situation today where instead of the Soviet Union, Kissinger would probably point to China as like the, the biggest problem that uh, that the United States has. So it, it's, I think, I think, I guess the complicated thing is really whether is fundamentally whether or not you believe a, can the ends justify the means under any circumstances and B, does it matter that you can that like there may be you know several ways to skin a cat like does it matter that you could potentially arrive at the same ending through alternate means and i think kissinger for all of his skills in terms of i mean he in in just in sheer influence he was able to be a very influential person for a long long period of time which I even even several presidents who lasted two terms didn't have the same kind of influence that he did um, from basically from like 1960 to I mean, he was still attending <laughs> birthday parties and or like having big dinners with Xi Jinping in China. And like, I mean, it's it's incredible at the age of 100 what how people still viewed him and viewed his influence um, that like yeah, I, I think that that just that that general idea of whatever it takes, whatever values and morals we have to compromise, that the ends can always justify the means. And I think that is the I don't know. I think I think to me that's like his enduring legacy and how you how you view that. I think that's that's really well said and it's difficult it's difficult to grapple with someone like that because on the one hand like this this is another reference a pop culture reference ricky i guess this guy this guy had me thinking right making all sorts of connections like uh, the movie a few good men when it reminded me a little bit of robert de niro's character when he's up on the stand and if people are familiar with that movie first of all go watch it, it's a classic but tom cruise is the one questioning him he's the lawyer and he, he's pushing him and at one point robert de niro's character says like you you might not like me but you want men like me out there. He's like, you, like you want men. The famous quote is, "You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall." And his point was that, like, it's it's nice for you and all your parties today with all the Washington elite and these progressive Ivy League institutions to go around and question how I provide safety and freedom for you all. But when you like rise and sleep under the blanket of freedom that I provide, you don't get to question the manner and I provide it. So that's essentially like what Robert Nero's character is saying, and that feels like Kissinger would pretty much say the same thing. Like, look, you all, the United States is the most powerful country in the world and has been for the last 70 years, largely because of the policies that I have pursued. Yeah, the, unfortunately, the, 
hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps even more than that, had to die for that to happen. It is what it is. My job was to advance U.S. interests. I did that. And like that's I think that's just a really hard thing for me to wrap my head around. I, I couldn't do it. But I, I kind of acknowledge that like you I don't want to say that you need people like that out there, but in certain positions, you want people out there that are kind of putting American U.S. interests first. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's you want to talk. He's almost like the dirty basketball player that like is doing all the as long as doing all the banging bodies. Right. Down. You're like, I would hate to play against that guy. I guess I'm glad he's on my team, but I'm not That's even like, like him. <laughs> No, ex- exactly. Right. Ex- exactly. Like, I, uh, like, and you're, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another really good comparison. You want to talk about Chile at all? I, I do, because I think this one for me is the, like when a lot of people at the beginning of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were pointing out American hypocrisy and that like, Hey, we're, you know, of course, we have this, you know, a little bit of a revenge tour after 9-11, but really we're looking at two places that are undemocratic, they're not free, and we're going to go there, we're going to give them freedom. And if you look at Chile as the prime example of a place that had these open elections, they elected a government that was socialist under Allende, and we were basically just like, oh no, never mind. Uh, like to us, that was immediately signaling of, okay, well, if, if they go this way, then it may start a kind of a cascade in South America. And then all of a sudden we'll have the Soviet Union to the east of us. And then a bunch of socialist communist places south of us. We already have Castro in Cuba. This has got to stop. And so, yeah, we basically uh, support a military coup there, which leads to, and and this is, you know, a, a very Kissinger, has Kissinger all over it, um, which leads to a very bloody set of years in, in Cuba, in, sorry, in Chile. But I think philosophically is very difficult for us to square because we say we believe in democracy. And that is like how we put our, how we sort of pitch ourselves to the world and why we think our system is the best. And then of course, when the democracy doesn't elect uh, the leadership that aligns with our values, all of a sudden it gets murky and where we allow ourselves to say, well, whatever, like, well, the election is this or something is that. But I, I think if if we are clear on the facts is that we we actually i yeah i don't i don't know this this to me is one of those areas that was going to be very very difficult to square if it was done out in the open obviously it was more of a it was less of a open it was more of an open secret than it was of kind of just like a a, a stated policy but the the result is the same. And I, I think that that kind of for me sort of taints everything. And we've talked about this before, like what is the point of having principles if you can't stick by them, even if they don't, even if sort of the circumstances don't um, work out the way that you want them to. Um, And that, and, but 
I, I think Kissinger would have no no problem with it. And I think in for for most of his life, people asked him if he would have done things differently. And he was always like, no, <laughs> definitely not. Sure, right. He got to live a long life and had plenty of time to reflect on his actions and they, pretty much exactly what you said. And kind of alluding to the quote that I said earlier is that like, if this is there's a lot of uncertainty out there and you this there are evil choices all over the place and you try to choose the one that's like the the least of all evils one of another quote ricky from this the chile situation he said quote i don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people and like that's i think that's exactly what you're talking about is that he didn't really have any respect for democratic processes as long as you know if they went against united states interests and so that is difficult for me because aside from just the pure power of it, like the United States being the most powerful country in the world, I think for me, why do I want us to be the most powerful? It's not just to be the most powerful. It's because I, I truly believe in the things that we claim to stand for. I, I truly believe in freedom and uh, in opportunity and, and people's rights and democracy. And and if if we're not trying to promote that all over the world, then it doesn't. Why? What are we doing here? Like, why? Why? Or why does it matter that we're powerful if we're just going to use our our power for the sake of of acquiring more power? And I think for me, and like I spent the last week or so reading about it and digesting it and trying to understand that he's super complex and it's real easy for me fifty years later to question the the actions of a guy that was actually out there doing the work. You know, I, I am that Tom Cruise character sitting back in my my like ivory tower being like, I don't like how you did that. But I don't. I don't like I, I and I think for me, like I I am I know an idealist and an optimist. And I, I, I really, truly believe in like the United States and its principles and values and the way that he operated throughout so many of these conflicts, I think, is antithetical to that. And so I, I think I in trying to assess how I feel about him and his legacy I'm disappointed that in so many ways he was like the the, the figurehead for so much of United States policy in the last 50 years yeah it, yeah I, I I think that's very well said and I, and I have I can't actually even believe that I'm offering a counterpoint here I think his origin story coming from Germany uh right before World War II uh basically watching although you know the extent to which the nazis get into power from through a democratic process is i i think would be rightly debated there was some kind of an election there um that probably leads him to believe that people are not to be like that the masses are not to be trusted and i think he really i mean if you think about the way that he operated always sort of behind closed doors um he he truly believed believe that uh that if you leave it up to the people they will choose the wrong things um which is of course the opposite of how we operate or claim to operate or claim to want to operate so that is <laughs> i think yeah obviously makes his legacy complicated i think what doesn't make his legacy complicated is that and perhaps this is another sort of vestige of of having lived through World War II is that he really did not see the humanity of people in the places that he operated. And that, I, and I think, 
you know, for people who want, who, you know, wanted to bring or want to frame him as a war criminal, this is exactly where you harp on. It's like for whatever he was trying to do, he disregarded the fact that real people lived in these places that he was, you know, either making an example out of or doing whatever he was doing. And I think, I think, I think what's difficult is that we see that we continue to see examples of this. And I think one of the things that's that's tough about this, the kind of counterfactual narrative, like same after 9-11, if we hadn't, if we don't do the things, if we don't do the torture, if we don't go to, you know, abduct people and send them to Guantanamo Bay, imagine what kind of terrorist activities are going to occur. But and yeah, and I guess, yeah, but, <laughs> but we don't live in like a, a sort of a minority report pre-crime kind of a era, right? Like the idea is that people are held accountable for the things that they do do, not the things that they do that may have prevented somebody else from doing something else. And that I think is, I think is still important because it's really the only way that we can operate in like in facts and not in conjecture and not in this world that is this kind of a vacuum where if if a doesn't happen then or if a happens then b is you know unquestionably going to happen and i think there is a certain naivety perhaps to what i'm saying or people who operate in the cia fbi would say something like that, that you don't know what you're talking about and you don't know what these people are capable of. And I think that could be true, but I don't, I don't know. It feels, <laughs> I, I think the, you know, whatever that is, like the, you, you become the monster that you're fighting and all of a sudden you're the only monster left in the room. And that is, I think that's a problem that's a problem for Kissinger and his legacy. Unfortunately, I think that's a problem for the the U.S. and like how people will think about this period of history for us, for you know when when we're thought of as the preeminent power. What did we do with that power for 50, 60, 70 years? So I don't know. I'll leave you with that. I do think that's really well said. Uh, one of just in closing, a couple of final points for me. One of this, his other quotes that stuck with me, and he said, quote, our objective was to purge our foreign policy of all sentimentality. And that's what he did. And like it, he was very open about his style and what he was trying to do. Again, just to echo what I said earlier, I couldn't do it. I don't like that. That's what that's uh, that that's how we conducted ourselves under his under his watch. Two points kind of on the other side of his legacy. One, he was the most powerful Jewish man in the United States uh, for a long time in, in a period coming out of obviously not only World War II, but a period of anti-Semitism across the world and the United States. So important to acknowledge that as Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which was a place that Kissinger had extensive dealings with, never allowed, like they didn't allow Jews in the country at all during that time, but they had to because Kissinger was a secretary of state and like they had to deal with him. So like, just the fact that he was there was, I think, a, a big impact in that region and finally we, we kind of glossed over this but he did personally 
open up United States relations with China, remarkably so. And China, for everything that you want to say about what's happened in China over the last 50 years, has been the engine behind the, the lifting the greatest number of people out of poverty in, in human history over that time. And perhaps that doesn't happen without Kissinger and Nixon's efforts there. And Ricky, this reminded me so much of, of Gorbachev. Kissinger went back in July at the age of 100 to meet with Xi Jinping and was welcomed with like rapturous applause. Like pe people were like, this is one of the greatest men of, of all time. Like they're like almost like venerating and uh, like that he was some kind of almost like deified figure. Uh, and so I, I did think, you know, when we talked about Gorbachev, we talked about how as like United States and Western citizens, we were like, oh, we... <laughs> We love this guy because of all the things that he's done for the world. But back in Russia, they're like, they do not like him at all. And it was kind of the opposite of that, where many of us in the United States are not huge fans of Kissinger and his legacy, as I'm sure is clear from our conversation. But in China, he is viewed as, as this hero. And it's just, it's I think it, it's, uh, to wrap this, it, it's very, it's a telling example of just how complex a legacy a, a man like Kissinger left. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to discuss a woman whose legacy is uh, not quite as complex, <laughs> not, definitely not in a bad way, uh, in uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor died last week at the age of 93, the end of a really remarkable life. And like we said about Kissinger, she was significant and she was impactful, but she was also good in so many ways. And while people have perhaps different opinions on her legacy, it would be hard for many people to have negative opinions of, of Justice O'Connor. She grew up in Arizona. She was, uh, her family were cattle ranchers and she she rose to become the first woman in the United States Supreme Court, Supreme Court when she was nominated by President Reagan in 1981. Prior to that, her career, super interesting. Uh, she went to Stanford Law School where she excelled and then began working as a lawyer. After that, she went on to serve in the United States, the uh, Arizona State Senate, where she became the first woman to serve as the Arizona State Majority Leader. And after leaving the Senate, she worked, she worked, uh, she was appointed as a judge for years. For, like a, as a district court judge for a few years, and then she was elevated to the Arizona State Court of Appeals. And then after that, plucked in some ways out of obscurity, uh, President Reagan followed through on a campaign promise to nominate the first woman to the Supreme Court and picked uh, Sandra Day O'Connor as his nominee. Despite some reservations from both the, I would say, far left and far right in the Senate, she was confirmed unanimously 99 to, to zero and ascended to the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, can't emphasize enough how historic that was for uh, 13 years. She was the only woman on the Supreme Court. And in thinking about her legacy, just as uh, Ginsburg is created, credited with a quote, like how many women will be enough on the Supreme Court? And Justice Ginsburg says nine. And that's never say never, but that's probably unlikely to happen anytime soon at least uh but you know what's not unlikely ricky is that we could have a majority uh female court the, the right, right now the, there are five men and four women on the court it wouldn't surprise me at all within the next 10 years that we have a majority female court and i think that would be something that's very normal and 
I think people would be excited about and, and accepting of and all of those things. And that doesn't happen without Justice O'Connor. And in reflecting on, on her legacy, Ricky, she is known as uh, a centrist, a moderate, a, a pragmatist, a, a someone who's practical. Uh, and in that way, I feel like she never really got the credit that she deserved. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the significant decisions that she either authored or was in the majority of. She, I would argue that no woman has had a bigger impact on the law than Justice O'Connor has had in the United States. Uh, but the thing is that she was criticized from the far right and she was no heroine of the, of the left, the liberals. And so what happens is that she's a little bit underappreciated, I think. And I would like to discuss kind of why that is and also to try to give her what I think the, the, the respect that she deserves is. And for me, Justice Ginsburg, obviously, when, when she passed, there's all of this kind of outpouring of uh, of respect and veneration for her too. And I understand that because she was such an icon of like of the liberals. But what happens is these these poor, these poor moderates, these poor pragmatists who who are not held up in the same way that Ginsburg or like a Scalia was, you know, when Scalia passed, he was held up on the right as like, oh, like this kind of godlike figure of, of legal, of the legal mind, the same way Ginsburg on the left is. And you have these justices who are, again, moderates, who are shaping the law in such important ways, but because neither side, neither far side can hold them up as examples of what they want them to be, they don't get the acknowledgement of that they deserve. So I am very pleased that we are going to spend some time talking about her. But um, what are what were your reactions in terms of uh, when you heard that she passed or in, in reading about her over this past week? Yeah, the um maybe I'll just start where where you sort of ended um in that. I think the term that I heard about her the most, especially in the early 2000s, um, so not the term that I was not very familiar with the court in the early 2000s, but the of her tenure during the early 2000s, late 90s, was that she was one, one of, if not the most powerful person on the court because she was this swing vote. She was one of the only people whose opinion you didn't necessarily know heading into a court case, which is a is almost a wild concept. I mean, we've talked historically about the politicization of the court and that it's really not that new for the court to be politicized, but that historically having these figures on the court who, as you say, are, are neither held up by either kind of wing of the party, um, they actually make some of the most decisions. I think you know, Robert sort of held, felt himself to be in that position for sort of the last 10 years, maybe prior to the Trump appointees. Um, but before that, it was it was really O'Connor. And that, um, I think when, and, and in, in many ways, I think a lot of her legacy is around sort of the legitimacy of the court and how people viewed, view the court um, just in general, does the public kind of have have the opinion that the court is doing what is fair and what is sort of right in accordance with the law? But additionally, like, what do people want to sort of see their court do? Um, and I think she she is one of those people who really had this feeling that the court does derive its power from people's belief in its legitimacy, um, which you know, for someone who comes in as a political appointee of Ronald Reagan, ostensibly on the right, but 
obviously rules sort of in some of these landmark cases, probably more with the left than anyone on the right would have wanted. Um, but she's able to sort of carve out that niche for herself as someone who's like there to actually like open, openly listen and try and apply the law to each case individually without having a predetermined um, viewpoint, which is sadly like refreshing and feels bygone. It definitely feels bygone. And I want to discuss some of my like my personal complicated feelings around her at some point, but just I want to highlight some of like the main cases that she's most famous for. So in um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, this was the challenge that to, to Roe, uh, this is a 1992 case, and this was the challenge that conservatives have been waiting 20 years for at this point, that, that people that were against Roe and against uh, access to abortion had said that finally we're going to have a challenge where we have a majority of justices that were appointed by Republicans. You would think that they were more conservative. I think this is where Roe is going to end. And so Justice O'Connor is the one that uh, is on the majority preserving the rights to abortion for for that generation, but also to allow greater state state regulation. The, the famous phrase in that case is an undue burden. So that states can regulate ab abortions, but as long as you don't put undue, abor uh, undue burdens on women who are trying to get them. And this was a case that satisfied like neither liberals nor conservatives. Like conservatives were like, I cannot believe that you didn't overturn Roe and take away the right to an abortion. And liberals were like, I cannot believe you, you put more more burdens, you put more restrictions on abortion. And, and so it's like, I, I think that to me is like the classic O'Connor case. Um, she's also the one in Greta v. Bollinger that was again overturned. This was the affirm, this was this preserve the affirmative action uh, rulings, which again had existed for 25 years at that point. And what, what she essentially says in, in that case, the famous lines that I have quoted many times, where she's like, hey, in 25 years, I hope that this will no longer be necessary. But at this point in time in American society, like I'm going to, I think we still need to preserve affirmative action because we're not where we need to be at, at these like elite institutions. She's also a majority in um, Bush v. Gore, which uh, obviously helped give uh, President Bush the presidency. And the so that's where I was kind of making my hypothesis, my thesis earlier of like, I do think she was the most influential person in American, most influential women, woman in American law, legal history, but also the most important person in the law for that period of time, like you said, because by the time her tenure on the court is winding down, everyone's pretty much pitching to her because like, they're like, Wh whatever Justice O'Connor comes out here, like that's going to be the decision, which is an incredible position for her to be in. So she does swing all of these things. And one of the things I think it would be hard not to respect about her is that if she was on the court in 73, she probably wouldn't have written Roe. She probably would have disagreed with Roe. But she essentially said, Roe is the law. That's the precedent. And whether or not I personally ag agree with it, that's what we're going to do here. And it's, and I think as you and I have talked about a lot, that respect for precedent and stare decisis certainly has <laughs> no longer seems to exist amongst this current court. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, a lot of that was how does that impact the legitimacy of the court? I think she, she has, I'm, I'm going to butcher if there is sort of a direct quote on this, but sort of alluded to the fact that the part of the Supreme Court's duty is to make a decision that means that we're no longer discussing 
this, right? That like that a lot of these arguments can be made in perpetuity, but the Supreme Court makes an adjudication on what is the law of the land as it stands today. And and I think she had that great sort of reverence for precedent because it prevents this sort of upheaval in terms that we're really seeing today, right? With with these laws under the new world order post row. Um that it's that 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 sort of ability to preserve well both the legitimacy of the court but also kind of stability within within the system at large um rests in how people view the court and its decisions and one of those things is are those decisions final or not final yeah, and I think her background is really interesting is that, as I mentioned, and this is incredibly rare nowadays and shows you how like the court has changed. Like if you go back, Ricky, and you look at some of the people that were appointed to the court in the 20th century, they come from all over the place. Some of them are judges and lawyers, but some of them had served in the presidential administrations and others were plucked out of like the U.S. Senate. And so today it seems very much like there's a, a very clear path to the court. Like you you go to an Ivy League, it's, you pretty much go to Harvard or Yale, and then you clerk for two years for a, you know a, an appeals court judge and then a, the Supreme Court, and then you probably go into private practice for a little bit, and then you are appointed as a federal judge and a federal appeals judge, and then you're on the Supreme Court. I know that's not exactly for all of these justices, but for many of them, that seems to be like the clear path. But Justice O'Connor was, was a, a state... Senator, you know what I mean? Like her, her background was very much in politics. And so even when she was a senator, she had developed this reputation as like a consensus builder and someone that would bring people together. And so those like sets of skills that she brought there were unique. And that's what she did on the court. And uh, I think she cared very much for how the law would affect people. Like she, she was known on the court for asking questions like, how, how this hypothetical ruling would affect like real people and real institutions. And that's obviously in opposition to a lot of the court today. Uh, she I, I was someone that was all about kind of like common sense as opposed to like a, like a reflexive ideology or something like that. Uh, and not, that's not to say that she didn't have like very strong views on things. Like she was a very big believer in federalism, like the, the separation of um like federal government power from state states power and allowing states to kind of make their own laws and, and rulings and, and at that level. She was also a big believer in like the separation of, of church and state. Uh, but so it's not to say that she didn't have principles, but she kind of recognized that as a court, like we should be trying to build consensus to, to get, get to this best decision possible, even if it doesn't quite satisfy your ideology here or your ideology here. Yeah. And I, and I think, that is probably how she would want to be remembered most. And, and I think there are some, obviously, you know, we started off this discussion saying that it's the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, which is a huge deal. And there's so much of that that I, I feel like she's sort of been quoted as saying, when Justice Ginsburg got appointed that it was a like a bit of a weight off her shoulders because she didn't have to basically be this person who would de facto represent the women's vote, the woman's vote on these issues. And she knew that she had substantive differences with Justice Ginsburg and was actually like welcoming that because it, 
broadens how people think about how women think about these issues. Um, but that sort of, I guess that notion of consensus building is so, <laughs> it seems so far away now. Um, but I get, yeah, I don't, I, I don't I don't know how you think about that or how you think about the importance of that, because I know, I mean, you've expressed this before, that you were no fan of sort of the road decision the first time around and probably even le as as, you know, as much of a fan as, of the Casey decision as you were of Roe, that like how do you think that she was as a justice in terms of whether or not she sort of upheld her duties as a justice to to divorce herself from what she may have thought or believed or thought or believed that people thought and believed um and just interpreted the law yeah that's what i kind of alluded to earlier in my discussion of her and i wanted to spend a lot of time singing her praises because i do believe that she is um un, under kind of respected like i think she she deserves more credit than she gets whether or not both contemporaneously and now historically but yeah she was someone I really liked before I went to law school I was like oh Justice O'Connor like I, I love people that are in the middle and that are really kind of open to hearing these different arguments and Justice Kennedy was another guy like that that heading into law school I was like I really respect those judges because they seem to be willing to see whatever it is and then you read some of her opinions and it's when you're building consensus, you're not going to get very good legal opinions, essentially, right? You're because you're, you're, you're trying to jam in all of these different things to get enough people to sign on to it, but they're not. I, I think it would be hard. I don't think a lot of people would argue that she was like this great legal writer or even like this great legal mind. That what her value as a justice was was actually seeing things from the perspective of individual people and being practical and caring about the integrity of the court and building consensus because you need people on there doing all of that. But I did, as I, as I read many of her opinions, I was slightly disenchanted because I was like, it's not, it's not, go back to the Senate if you want to do that. You know what I mean? Like this is that your job here is to tell me what the, what the law is. And this, this opinion doesn't do that. And it doesn't provide any guidance for lower courts because this is all just kind of a, what does an undue burden mean now? All right, well, now we're gonna have a bunch of courts deciding what, what counts as an undue burden or not. You know, and so like that, I think that was, uh, that's where I had struggled because I am, it's hard to be Ricky because I do, I like consensus in politics, right? Like I, I want consensus builders in the, the Senate and in the House. But as, as like a legal mind, I'm very much like, yeah, your job is just to tell me what the law is, not to try to get this whole group can a mishmash of, of ideas in there yeah she de definitely doesn't give you the same consistency that uh clarence thomas or a or a scalia might have but i or or, or ginsburg or sotomayor or you know sure sure i think though that like i think that if people look back on the last like 50 years despite maybe the vagaries or the vagueness of some of her opinion of, of some of the opinions that basically she was the deciding vote on that people will still think of her time as a justice as like a good time for the supreme court whereas a lot of what is going on that may legally be more kind of appealing in its black and whiteness 
that is is kind of less so. Yeah, yeah, I I I think that I totally agree with that, and I think in addition to like me citing her background as a politician or her background as like a cattle rancher or someone that kind of grew up as a real person. Obviously, she went to Stanford Law. It's not like she she was out there like slumming it in some ways. You know, she's she's obviously very brilliant and spent time in elite institutions. But I do think there there's there's a level of detachment um, at the current court that Justice O'Connor kind of never let seep in. Like she again, I can't say this enough. Was very um, consistently emphasized. Like how does this affect real people? And I think it's very telling that Donald McGahn, who was the advisor to President Trump in picking judges. I actually want to read this quote. It says, uh, quote, in, in the vetting process for Trump picking judges, he says, there can never be another Sandra Day O'Connor, right? Like, and his point was that, like, he does, he was very clear that he does not want consensus builders. He doesn't want pragmatists, realists. He wants people out there that are true believers in, like, what the law kind of should be. And that's certainly what they've done. Uh, and as you know, as a legal mind, I can appreciate that, but I, I don't disagree with you, Ricky, that uh, the court is missing uh, a person is really missing Justice O'Connor in a lot of ways. And since it's one more point on her, she retired in 2006 and she wasn't some spring chicken. I think at that point she was 78 or 79. So I don't want to give her like too much credit with that. But with that said, is that she gave up that seat and said, like, I don't need to serve until I die unlike some other justices recently. And she was pretty much like, I'm going to go home. Her husband had, had Alzheimer's. She was like, I want to spend time with him over the rest of his life. And I don't need to hold on to this so I can keep making policy because that's not what she was there to do, right? She she kind of did her job and stepped away. And finally, to your point about the pressure she felt as being the only female judge, she said numerous times that she felt the pressure because if she didn't measure up it, to her colleagues or what the expectations were. She was worried that there wouldn't be another one for a very long time. And to her immense credit, she was able to live to see not only Justice Ginsburg, but to see Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan and um, Justice Cody uh, Barrett and Justice Brown Jackson. And I think that must be, must have been very cool for her to kind of look back and see what her example and her ability um, allowed for so many other people. And so she was, like you said, she was never about like championing the fact that she was the first woman, like so many like humble people that do things first. She, she was just like, I'm just going to go do a good job. But without her, we don't get all of these female justices of the 20th century, uh, 21st century. And so for that, uh, it's hard to be anything but like pretty grateful and, uh, and respectful for, for what her career and her life. Yeah. Yeah. You really just can't underestimate what it means to not only break the glass ceiling, but also, you know, perform at, at a level that, that people sort of wonder, okay, what have we been missing this whole time? Not like, see, we, we knew we were right kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think that wraps our little in memoriam session um that was it's good to talk about this i yeah it was like the like it's i think it's i think on a personal level very good for me to to read about these really impactful figures of the 20th century who i knew by like the byline by their name and like the top level details but to to really kind of dig into their lives um uh, happy to do it i'm glad that we had the opportunity this was a good idea and I hope people out there um, enjoyed it and hopefully learned some things as well.
Yeah, for sure. All right. Till next time, buddy. Merry Christmas to everyone that celebrates. Have a great, safe holiday season. We appreciate you all. See you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a ram. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions we share loud American ideal friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz there's hope behind the bluster cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.